is a youth side. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. Wenyam Lee is a co-producer and a host of PBS's Lucky Chow. Now in its fourth season, Lucky Chow is a very special program that showcases the Asian American experiences through the lens of food. Wenyam began his career with studies of art history and went on becoming the publisher of Men's Vogue. He is currently a contributing editor of Town and Country and Out Decor. Food creates connections. With Lucky Chow, Williams aims to heighten the appreciation of Asian culture and heritage. First of all, thank you so much for joining me today My on pleasure. the show. Um, I got to read all about your bio, and I got to do a little bit of research on you, and I just find that it's so fascinating and rewarding to to learn your history because along the way of your career, you've broken a lot of bamboo ceilings, glass ceilings for the Asian community, and I really want to talk about that. So let's dive right in. Sure. You started in the industry in the fashion world first. Yes. So I actually, after I graduated college, I spent. Uh, a two years, two quick years working in an advertising agency, and soon after uh, working at an agency, I started uh, in magazine publishing. I was at Hearst Magazines for a couple of years, and then I spent 15 years at Connie Nast. I joined um, Connie Nast in 2005 um, on the relaunch of House and Garden. And then over the years, I worked for many of their their best publications, The New Yorker, uh, Connie Nast Traveler. I was the launch publisher of Men's Vogue um, in 2006, which was pretty exciting. No, I joined in 1995. Oh, my God, that's how old I am. I said 2005, but it's really 1995. Wow. Um, so I was at Men's Vogue for uh, about three years, and then I went on to launch Connie Nast's very sort of big, uh, ambitious business magazine um, called Portfolio, which unfortunately launched in 2008, right when um, the financial crisis happened. So that was not a long-lived uh, venture. But, and then after that, I was at, at Connie Nast Traveler. So all in all, almost you know a decade and a half at, at Connie Nast, which was an incredible learning experience and you know really my time at men's vogue put me sort of front and center of the fashion world which is someplace i never actually had any ambition in being in um but i just sort of landed there and it was uh it was an incredible experience and for those audience out there that don't really understand the publishing side, give them a little bit of description of what your responsibilities like launching was, a magazine like Men's Vogue. Yeah, so as the publisher, so their magazines are, are separated into the editorial side and the publishing side. So it's basically um, creative and business. So while the editors are in charge of creating all the content, the business people, including especially the publisher, is leading the team that's in, responsible for ad sales, marketing, promotion, events, circulation, basically driving all the revenue into the magazine. So, you know, for the most part, the job is really about selling as much advertising as possible to as many people as possible. And you were the first executive in that position as an Asian American. Yes. So in 2000, uh, sorry, yes, in 2004, when I was named publisher of Men's Vogue, I was the only publisher of color at Connie Nast in the history of Connie Nast U.S. And at the time, I was also the only openly gay um, publisher at the company. To this day, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, I still am the only publisher of color that uh, has ever held that position at Connie Nast U.S., why do you think of that? What do you think is the reason for that? Oh, God. We only have an hour. Um, so, you know, I think it's a lot of things. So first and foremost, I think that traditional 
traditional career paths for Asian Americans or American Asians, um, American-born Asians such as myself. I mean, if you have immigrant parents, the, the traditional career paths are law, medicine, engineering, maybe accountant, that type of thing. So I, do, I think that, you know, there, with my generation at least, there wasn't a huge amount of interest to go into creative fields because creative fields uh, were considered not as lucrative, not as safe, not as, as serious as maybe law and medicine. Having said that, I also feel that the worlds of media, the worlds of fashion, um, the worlds of culture um, are not necessarily worlds that are very welcoming to people who don't necessarily come from that world. And, you know, I'll give you a, a perfect example of how I kind of landed in advertising. When I, when I was in college, I actually majored in art history. And what I really wanted to do was, you know, become an expert in a field you know, work, maybe work in a gallery, work in an auction house. And when I graduated college, as I was graduating college, I, I looked for sent in letters and resumes to the top galleries, the top auction houses. And the fact of the matter is I did actually get quite a bit of interest and could have gotten a job in any of those places. But the problem is the entry level salaries for most of those places, and, and I will include media as well, you're not making very much money. So oftentimes, you know, those entry-level jobs, because of what they pay, you know, really only go to people whose parents can afford to send them through their first job at Christie's. And, you know, I sort of ended up in advertising with the thought of, well, I'm interested in something creative, but I also need to sort of, you know, do something that is going to pay their rent and is kind of like a business. So advertising was kind of a great place for me to start. Not that I made a lot of money there either, but it was certainly more than I would have made as a receptionist at a great gallery on 57th Street. So the, this is a long way of answering your question. I think that creative fields, and to this day, I don't think there is enough um, outreach to communities of color um, to make these companies uh, interesting or make them sort of even within the realm of consideration. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think media and fashion is very, very exclusive. And it has been to its detriment. And oh, yeah. as, you, as you can see what's happened in the last, you know, two, three months, you know, the tide is turning. But I think that ultimately companies are going to have to put their money where their mouth is. They're going to have to recruit at schools and universities and in communities that don't necessarily turn out the traditional candidate for a fashion house or a traditional candidate for a media company. I think they have to make a bigger effort. And having said that, I also think that there needs to be a level of mentorship and, and, and leadership within these companies to encourage the people and grow the people who are already at those companies um, and give them brighter futures. You know, I think it's a little astounding that to this day, there hasn't been another Asian American, African American publisher at Connie Nast US. It's, that is very, very surprising to me. I, I do think, I agree with you. I do believe it's twofold. One is that the, being a publisher, you're truly the financial engine behind the creative. And it's easy for, for people to understand the creative side of it and want to be on the creative side of it because they're really the front face of the type of work that they can be out there. Especially, especially in the recent 10 years of social media and being present, being involved on the front end of the magazine, being involved in that, that way of creative is something that's really celebrated. And, and you're right. It has to come from education. It has to come from knowing that publishers are just as important. Without it, there's nothing you can print. Without the collaborations of advertisers and whatnot, you wouldn't be able to have those pages and glossy you know, pages to turn and amazing, right. amazing models and, and celebrity for photographer like me get to photograph. And I feel that within the last three years, at least for my uh, my exposure working with a lot of Asian magazines, I truly then realized how much responsibility as a photographer 
that we have to listen to the publishers. Because I think for the longest time that they live very far apart from each other. The, yes. the, the ego is right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The publisher will leave right. us alone. We know what's a good cover. And then right. sometimes the publisher comes in. And I, and I experienced that myself by putting yeah. five covers forward to the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, Singapore, for example. And it would get pushed back and say, well, we need more XYZ because the right. publisher doesn't respond to this. And then at first, that just, you know, our natural inkling as a creative, what do you know about art? Right. What do you know about, about which picture is the right picture? Well, and then <laughs> surprisingly, they actually know because they have to put money where the mouth is, the mouth where the money is, right? We need to make sure that the magazine do sell. And with that understanding, I think it's so important for artists, for photographers out there, for stylists out there, for people in the beauty industry, if they can understand more what the responsibility of publishers and the engine behind them, it's really there to support. And without it, look at the magazine world right now. Look at all the yeah. glossies right now. The publishers are more important than the actual content creators because we cannot create right. without publishers. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I I absolutely agree with you, and I think that with social media and digital media, and how those platforms allow brands to gauge return on investment quite easily. Um, you know, if you buy ads on Instagram and you do it well, you see a direct return on investment. Um, for those for those advertisements. Having said that, I also think that the, the great editors of today, um, and it's funny, I, you know, I I came from the publishing world, but now in my my current life, um, I'm actually a contributing editor at Town and Country and El Decor here in the U.S., um, where I'm on the content creation side, and I will say that the the modern day successful editors and I and I will use my my dear friend Stalin Belandes as an example. You know, these are editors, I think successful editors today are editors who understand how to create magazine content that is exciting, that that people you know, creating content that people can't get online. I think that, you know, the power of print is still extremely strong, but I think that you know, in a lot of places, editors have sort of given up to, you know, social media. Like, oh, we can't compete with that. So let's just kind of do the same thing that social media is doing, which is kind of like quick sound bites of information, sort of easily digestible content. When in fact, what people really turn to magazines for is incredible experiential, tactile kind of product. And I think that magazines still can, can, can still can serve that purpose. But I think that there are very few editors today that really sort of go that extra mile and who are passionate about the platform. You know, Stalina is one of them. Um, you know, I look at what Radhika Jones is doing at Vanity Fair. I think she's doing an incredible job. I'm really excited to see what Samir is doing. Edward Ennefel at British Vogue, I think, is doing an incredible job. So I think that, you know, Good editors also, to, to sort of finish on your point, understand that magazines now really are a commercial entity. And it's super competitive. You know, if you have a fashion advertiser who has $4 million to spend and you want as much of that pie as possible, how are you going to give them content and an environment that feels as urgent as Instagram or YouTube or something else? You know, it's, it's really become much more of a business. And I think that's a great thing for magazines because as I grew up in the business, you know, editorial and business were church and state. And I fully respect that. I spent three years at the New Yorker where church and state, there was no magazine in the world that was more church and state than the New Yorker. And that sort of, that sense of purity um, leads to a great product. But I think that as, you know, particularly for fashion magazines, style magazines, lifestyle magazines, are now competing with digital marketing. You just have to be a little bit more flexible while staying true to who you are. 
Well, I, I love you saying that because we have seen this history play out over and over. Uh, we can see that when YouTube became very popular, the magazines who jumped on content creation and embraced the influencers definitely tap into a market that, that fulfilled the need. And I feel like it's really generational because I come from advertising, traditional advertising background with Arnell Group for years and oh, years. Yeah. You know, I did traditional advertising. But one of the things I learned a lot while I was there, I was a creative director for them on the West Coast, is that as it, as the web world develops, as content delivery service can be can be uh, diversified, he embraced it, and that's something that a lot of agencies are really kind of old machines. They just do the same thing, and magazines yeah. fall into that that world as well. Six years ago, we saw the changes at Hearst, Condé Nast, where they started dropping print teams and moving the digital team to the print team, yeah. and thinking the digital team would actually be able to communicate to the print audience the same yeah. 10 years later, they had to switch it back. Because yeah. it is two different audiences, and I feel it is a generational thing. The audience that you capture, that you have nurtured, you have to hold on to them. And yeah. then you have to then develop to, to really speak to the new audience. They're not separated, and they, both media is really, really important. Yes, now we're just talking about advertising, but but I love this conversation because I think it's so relevant to what's happening now. How do we speak to people so that people can hear? Because there's a lot of noises out there right now, and I call them noises because within all that noise, there has to come with a voice. And we are beginning to see that in the fashion industry, as you said. Your name, you know, Editor Edward Colors are beginning to be painted where we haven't seen a lot. Responsibility and credit. And, are people who are living up to, to as you say, walk to walk and talk to talk, and not by choice, I'm sorry to say, not really by choice, but by the force of nature of people's voices, you know, telling them, make these changes. And I, I, and I said this with, with truly, I hope, with the most deepest desire that it will change, and it is Condé Nast. It is a very white-dominated magazine world yeah. that. and I work with them as well and thank you for having me work with you And but it wasn't until there were more colored people in the places of creative that I was then embraced more and being part of the family and that's that's first hand experience yes. and you can never say you can never discredit that right? you can never discredit that, that, that having all the color rainbow you can paint anything you want yes and that's that's so important that that we recognize that now and we begin to see that change and i hope this change is permanent it's not a trend and it's yeah i i actually think this is going to i think that the last couple of months and this sort of global kind of reckoning that we've had um is here to stay and i think that the one thing that's going to continue to be um sort of the wind on the backs of this movement is the fact that advertisers and companies and brands are demanding that media companies are more diverse. They, they are demanding that content is created by people who are more diverse. So, you know, talk about putting your money where your mouth is, you know, these media companies are going to have to show, you know, consumers and marketers that they represent what, the, the changing face of America, of the world, um, is looking like. Um, and I think that when there's money behind that, things change quite quickly. I hope so. And it's not just, and unfortunately. And, and there, are, there, there have been a lot of movement that happened in the last six years. You no, know, I work with Sports Illustrated with MJ Day, who has been champion for women empowerment, and, I, and we've been shooting for 10 years. As a photographer going through that journey with her, I know in the beginning of my journey, it was all about shooting sexy cells, sexy yeah. cells. As we evolve, as women's voices are being heard, the audience, the social media, they realize that this, the audience are not just these teenage boys buying it from Walmart and taking it home and hiding under their pillow. It, 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 listen, I was that teenager, so I can say that. Right. And their dads. <laughs> and, and their, <laughs> yes, and their dads. And their grandfathers. And, 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 you know, so, so having the idea and notion to push forward the inclusivity not in, in just the skin tone, but yeah. by age and sizes of people, those voices have been out there. And I'm just glad that they're being heard. And yes. there's so many people out there that have been championing it. And I want to talk about this because it leads right into the, uh, the notion of how Asian community has to stay together and help each other celebrate. One of the things I'm so proud of this year, uh, shooting for Sports Illustrated, is that we have a 
Korean model who crossed the line what agency required to be. Her agency did not want her to come to a sports illustrated shoot. We had a model search. She defied them. She showed up. And I interviewed her and I asked her, oh my God, I know you. You're, you're a high fashion model. You're with a prominent agency. Why are you here? And she said, because Asian women can be beautiful and sexy in Sports yes. Illustrated and yeah. still be proud. Yeah. And I have goosebumps because that's what we want in this publication. That's what we want people to see and feel. And I got to shoot her. And it was so important for me because I wanted to be the Asian photographer, Asian-American photographer, shooting this beautiful Asian Korean model that celebrates her beauty on right. her own term. And that's what's starting to happen now. And in TV shows as well. The idea that we get to celebrate our cuisine in a way that is not just a a, a drive-through Panda Express, right? Yeah. So so that's what Lucky Chow really draw me to you, Angela. You guys host together at this beautiful show called Lucky Chow. And I and I find such a kind spirit because I have similar show that's in yeah. Asia. And honestly, what an amazing education to watch you guys' journey because I get to see that quality of Asian historical history yeah. in America, where I didn't know was here. I'll be honest. I had yeah. to go to Asia and find it. So yeah. uh, talk me through that journey. How did Lucky Chow even was born? Okay, so I want to, I absolutely will do that, but I just want to pick up on the one point that you made about celebrating Asian models as not only beautiful, but also sexy. And, and maybe we come back to this subject in a little bit. But this whole notion also of Asian masculinity and the way that Asian men are never are never portrayed in in mass media as as sexy as handsome. It's it's always some sort of you know cliche emasculated type of character. And I think that Asian portrayals in media, um, particularly for it, the way Asian men are portrayed, it, I think we have a long way to go there. I think that you know. Women are making, Asian women are making strides there, but I think this whole notion of what is Asian male beauty, um, we still have a long way to go. But going... I agree with that. I want to touch up on that. Just yeah. being, being a photographer who cast Asian models, absolutely. And for me, it took me a few years to, to be, I want to say, okay, I conformed to yeah. what white people think Asians supposed to look like. Correct. Therefore, because we have the biggest market, we have the yeah. most population, so if some agent sitting behind a desk that is pure white as a dub bar yeah. saying that this Asian male model is going to be the mixed supermodel because we're going to put him in front of everyone, but we're yeah. not going to put the other Asians in front of him, he won't become a super male model. Right. However, they're always the most slanted eyes, almond eyes, fair skin, and yes. a nose bridge that they white culture Correct. oppression of what Asian men supposed to be. Right. And I, I'm not sure you've gone through this, but you're Asian American, and I went through it growing up that everybody would fight me saying, you're not Asian, you don't look Asian, you look Latin, yeah. you're Latin. Like, this is yeah. always this, this notion that right. if you want to be Asian, you... you, you you have to look you, one way. Yes, it's only yeah. one way and one way yeah. they know it. You know, yeah. I might as well be walking around with a violin and say I'm Asian. You know, that, then they'll go, oh, he's Asian. Because he, I can't carry a piano with me everywhere I go. Right. You know? <laughs> right. But, but yes, and, and that is something that I've absolutely been challenging the model industry and agents. And I call them out throughout this entire difficult time because I have the voice and I have the time yeah. to really yeah. call them out because I personally offended in a culture, a white agent who yeah. never been to Asia tells me which Asian model that I should be photographing when I'm asking for a different model to shoot. Yeah. Or tell me this Asian model will not work in this Asian market anymore because she's too big to be in that magazine. That is so offensive and it is why a lot of successful Asian people in America no longer go back to where they're from to celebrate who they are because mm -hmm. the people in this country actually tell them they don't need to. Yeah. That is my biggest problem in this industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's great to have a platform as big as yours um, and you're using it in the right way. Um, so wait, just going back to Lucky Chow. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, so the founder of Lucky Chow, um, the show, is an incredible woman named Danielle Chang, 
who has been a dear friend of mine for the last decade. And Danielle and I actually got to know each other when I was at Connie Nast, uh, my, my last year at Connie Nast, um, I was at Connie Nast Traveler, and she was launching a food festival in 2010 called Lucky Rice. And back in 2010, and this is going to sound crazy because everyone thinks like, oh, Asian food, it's so universal. But 10 years ago, she had a very, very simple idea, which is to start a food festival, a multi-city food festival that would raise awareness of Asian culture and Asian heritage through the lens of food. And back in 2010, this was the beginning days of David Chang. It was the, you know, it was the beginning of, you know, the Asian culinary scene sort of finding a sort of deeper um, sort of foundation among like star chefs. Um, and she, you know, showcased Cambodian food, uh, Laotian food, um, Filipino food, like basically things now that you would think like, oh yeah, like everyone eats Lao food, you know, it seems so normal now, but 10 years ago, this was actually a rather radical idea. So, um, Connie Nast Traveler actually, uh, became her media sponsor for the festival and was her, her sponsor for a couple of years. And, you know, we've stayed close, um, over the last decade. And as I was leaving, um, my last job at Ralph Lauren, we got to talking about how can we work together? Cause it's always something that we both wanted to do, but never really had the right time. And at the time she was, uh, she had just finished uh, season three of Lucky Chow, which is an incredible show that she started five years ago and hosted um, three incredible seasons. She'd started to think about how to evolve the show, how to bring in new voices, um, and, you know, gave me this incredible opportunity really to join her as co-host and co-producer to continue to tell these incredible stories of Asian culture, history, heritage, uh, through the lens of food. And season four really leans in hard to, you know, you, you, you mentioned something before about, not, you know, having to go back to Asia to sort of learn about Asian culture. You know, I was born in New York City. I feel like I'm pretty firmly rooted in, you know, Chinese American culture and, and, and Chinese food, you know, but the thing that I learned through Lucky Chow, which was so incredible, was the diversity of cooking, Asian cooking around the country, the vast Asian diaspora, not only in America, but, you know, talking to chefs like Eric Ramirez, who is the chef at Lamasan, who you know, really put on the map Nikkei cuisine, which is this, this cuisine that is highly influenced by the Japanese immigration to Peru um, in the late 1800s. And that, you know, who knew that there were Japanese people in Peru? I mean, a little bit of that kind of di di diaspora story I can relate to because my father actually, when he was a young man, uh, immigrated from Guangzhou province to Havana, Cuba, where there was a huge bustling Chinese community in, in Cuba. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, cheap labor, um, you know, working in the plantations, et cetera. But eventually there became a huge, you know, community there. And that whole, like the Asian immigration to, to places in the Caribbean, like Jamaica, like Trinidad, to Guyana, to Brazil, the Japanese in Brazil, the Chinese in Brazil, that, you know, we talk about Nikkei cuisine in Peru, but there's also a Chinese version of that in Peru called Chifa cuisine, which is a complete amalgamation of Chinese and Peruvian food, but they don't even consider Chifa or Nikkei like hybrid. They consider that a standalone cuisine that mm. has come. So like a lot of people use hybrid, which is kind of like I borrow a little bit of this and I, you know, like fusion, but it's really not fusion. It has, because the, these immigrants have been there for so long, 
a brand new cuisine has started. And a lot has to do with the resources of ingredients that's provided exactly. to them. And those exactly. ingredients redefine. And, and I love the fact that you're saying it's not fusion. It is yeah. not fusion because yeah. fusion is, if I would have bought a bag of rice from Peru to Japan to make that food, that's fusion. Yeah. But the, the, the resources that you get in your own space and, and the, the whole concept that you get to see this actually, I love the show that Pamela's uh, last meeting to yes. called uh, Taste the Nation and I had the opportunity to talk to her. It is truly to find out what food identity is and through that food identity, you find out who you are, right? And, Absolutely. And, that, and, and you touch on the fact that I had to go back to Asia to find out who I am. And then important to touch on that because I moved here when I was 14 years old. Mm. And when I was here, I reinvented myself as a whole new person because I was not well accepted because my personality in Asia, I just did not survive. Mm -hmm. I would not have survived. Mm -hmm. And by having that location change and having a new start, I literally felt I had a restart button and God gave me a restart. I restart new language, new way of living. And, and as I grew, I did not look back to Taiwan as where mm -hmm. I'm from. I don't, wave a flag or Taiwanese flag or Chinese flag. I don't get political. I put my head down like a good Asian boy and work really, mm -hmm. really hard mm -hmm. and to make sure that I can leave my house when I'm 18. I love when I was 16. I was really happy about that. And I came back to <laughs> <and I left. laughs> but, but like I had to, like, that's what that was all about. And I, I did not think and ever go, I'm working hard because I'm Asian or I'm Asian, they're about to do something. I just did based on pure survival instinct. Yeah. That's what I needed. And and because of that, I had to go back to understand my roots. I had to go back and taste the food that I had so many years ago, 20-some years ago, and, and understand how I became who I become and what water did I drink to, to, to become who I become. And I practiced my Mandarin for three months so I can do my own voiceover. So nobody else's voiceover but mine when I did a Mandarin version. There's two versions of the show. And it was the most rewarding time because doing a pre-prep, I had to learn all these cuisines. Yeah. And my whole entire family, my aunts and uncles who all had restaurants in the past, all gathered in the kitchen and teach me how to make authentic Taiwanese food. Yeah. Because I make my own version, but I wanted to really showcase the roots and culture. And then meeting people like you along the way, that just truly inspires you to who you are. Yeah. I needed to do that. And because of that, I know how rewarding it is and be able to walk the street I walked when I was at a grade school and visit my grandmother who was 100 years old and took me back to the school where she used to take me to. It was, it was emotionally crazy roller coaster but it was awesome but at the same time when i watch lucky child when i watch your 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 eyes seeing the world through yeah. the food that you guys are tasting it does bring home to me here and that's the first time i understood truly that how much culture that we have here that is still heritage driven because we are very diluted and you're right the word fusion really ruined the chinese food culture right so these shows are so important and and Taste the Nation. I learned that there's no such thing as American food. It came from Germany, it came from here. Yeah. And, and same as yours. And what I love most about it is that you're celebrating immigrants. You're yes. celebrating first generation, second generation, third generation, and you're celebrating heritage. And you're also celebrating likeness of what I can look at on TV and say, there he is. Yes. There is an Asian American who have broken glass ceilings along his way and still champion for a cuisine that many people think is cheap and is a takeout. But it's not right. just that, the heart and soul of it. Yes, well, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. You know, that is, you know, that's absolutely what we try to do with the show is to just put, you know, it's not, you know, in a way it's, yes, we're a food show, but for us, it was really more about making sure that people understood where the food came from historically and making sure that people realize that food is attached to culture, is attached to personal stories, that there's heart, that there's soul in, in every single, you know, dish that we, we show. You know, I, I think it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, going back to like you went to Taiwan um, and you sort of reclaimed your heritage and your excitement. 
Um, you know, over the last decade, I spent, a, I have spent a lot of time in China and I've spent a lot of time throughout Asia, actually. And I'll never forget, you know, a couple years ago, and I've been to Hong Kong a million times, but there was one moment um, when I was walking down the street in Hong Kong and I thought to myself, wow, I don't look different than anybody else walking down the street. I really felt like I fit in. I felt like I was walking the streets that my grandfather, my grandmother, my, my mother walked. Like there was a sense of incredible connection, which I think a lot of American born Asians don't necessarily feel. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, parents just want you to assimilate as quickly as possible and be successful. But, you know, this, the sense of belonging that I felt in Hong Kong was uh, incredible. But I bring this up also because there are a couple of young chefs that we feature on Lucky Chow. Um, two come to mind immediately. One is Eric Z, who has an incredible Taiwanese restaurant called 886, which is based on the area code of Taipei. Um, it's called 886. It's on St. Mark's Place. And Eric tells a really interesting story on our show in that he, when he was growing up, he was taught, he grew up in Taiwan, went to NYU, but when he was growing up in Taiwan, he thought everything was better in America. The TV shows were better in America, the movies were better in America, the food was better in America, the music, everything was better in the West. And, you know, after coming to school in the U.S. and meeting other Asian Americans and, you know, uh, meeting this guy, Trig Brown, who's the incredible chef at Winsan, which is another Taiwanese restaurant in Brooklyn, Eric sort of reclaimed his Taiwanese identity and became more fascinated about Taiwanese food, the origins of Taiwanese food, the historical kind of implications of Taiwanese food, the fact that Taiwan had so much immigration from other places, including Japan, and when ingredients got there, you know, really becoming an expert in kind of that that history, that culinary history, has made him a better chef, but it's also given his food a sense of authenticity and life and vibrancy that I think truly comes from his heart, which is incredible. The other chef that um, I think is one of the most brilliant thinkers and, and, and cooks in the world is this guy, young guy named Lucas Sin, who founded, you should know Lucas Sin, because I mean, the conversations with Lucas Sin are, are, are brilliant. So Lucas Sin is the, uh, one of the founders of Junzi Kitchen and in New York and New Haven. And he, uh, born in Hong Kong, raised in Hong Kong, uh, came to the United States um, for college. He went to Yale. And at Yale, he started his, he has some cooks in his background. He talks about his father being one of the best cooks he knows and his grandmother being an incredible chef. But when he was at Yale, he started kind of playing with doing a pop-up restaurant in his dorm, um, which is incredible. And it was like a sit-down, like five-course, very formal pop-up restaurant in his dorm, which professors would go to and, you know, students. It was incredible. But, you know, he what's really interesting about Lucas is his cooking is really about understanding the technical aspects of, of really authentic Chinese cooking, but also understanding the history of dishes and where they come from and how ingredients came to be used and just this incredible knowledge of, and, and I sort of feel like he has kind of, again, reclaimed his Chinese identity through food. And I, I personally find that incredibly exciting because, you know, I have, uh, two nephews and a niece who I love very much, who are now second generation American, Chinese Americans. They don't speak English, they don't speak Chinese. They barely understand it. They kind of like Chinese food, but one of my nephews actually doesn't even like Asian food. And to me, it's, it's a bit worrisome that, no, you know, like a You'll come around. I hope so. We I, all do. I, I think so, too. 
they, they do eventually see. realize that that's what home is, right? And it's what comfort is. DNA. But, it's in your DNA. One yeah. of these days, they're going to kick in and go, you like that sugar and white rice, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, I'm not making you nachos. I know that's what you want to eat, but I'm not making you nachos. <laughs> and and, and I, I, love, I love seeing these chefs that are embracing the Asian cuisine and really re-celebrate it again and again because yeah. Chinese food have yet having have yet to reach that pinnacle of French cuisine. But yes. what's very interesting is that on the show, I have opportunity to interview Melissa King, who's the yeah. all-star winner of yes. top, top, um, top Chef this season. And I'm meeting tomorrow, who is also a winner, and I also mentioned Kristen. And one thing, and I purposely interview the Asian chefs because what I love about the most, all of them are Michelin star trained chefs. Yes. They all went to French Laundry, and they all done all the homework. And and even my friend Shirley Chen, who I've become my dear sister now, I talk to her every day, yeah. encouraging to get her restaurant to open this Chi in Culver City. She's a dumpling queen, by the way. I can't no. wait for her to open up. Um, and she too trained under Keller. I mean, like the best of yeah. the best. But guess what food they're making? Yeah. You know, right. and what inspires them? It truly what inspires them. And and I love I love hearing that. And and. And Ling and Kristen, they're making food that's more Americanized, but you know what? Because what runs through your blood, there's always a touch of twist that always comes through. And eventually you, you find your you find your culinary voice. And for me, it wasn't just about a travel show to go back home and walk the the, the, the same path I did when I was young. I wanted to pay respect to them and I wanted to make sure that I interview people, not that they make the best food. Mm. But they carry the heritage mm -hmm. the longest. I had the, one of the, the the food that I had to taste, and it was not my palate, as I'm still learning to eat it. Is eel, and oh. it was so strong. And I, I'll say this: while we were filming, I actually took it out of my mouth, and I go, "Oh my god, it's so bad in Asian culture." I had to put it back in. <laughs> but, yeah. My producer's like, "What are you doing? You got to put it back in your mouth." They Wait, go, what was the preparation? Was it like? Vinegary? Like, what, what? There's three ways they prepare. One is stir fry with pepper. One yeah. is um, very gooey, so it's a lot of uh, cornstarch. Um, and then the last one is on noodles, which is mm -hmm. on, on very Cantonese style, you know, mm -hmm. dry noodles and they put it mm -hmm. on top. And But what I wanted to get out of it and what I learned from this, that little place has been there for three generations, yeah. over a hundred years old history. Yeah. And the grand grandfather is the first person who took eel, which is just a fish that's in a rice patty that nobody even think is food, right. made it into a cuisine because he figured out how to actually butcher it. Because butchering right. eel, as you know, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's, it's bloody, number one, oh, it's, it's yeah. so gross, but yeah. it's hard, it's, it's, it's meticulous. So when I got to see that, that's when I realized, wow, their food might not be my palate, but it's worth celebrating. It's absolutely, absolutely worth celebrating. And there a lot of people love it. It just happened yeah. to be the ones in my palate. It's like stinky tofu, you yeah. know? Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I was in Hong Kong, every time I get off, when I get off the, uh, the train, I know I'm right by the night market or I'm yeah. right by the open market because that stinky tofu stink up the whole street and yeah. I just follow it. I just follow yeah. it with my nose. And totally. Grab it. But, yeah. but that's, and, and that's, that celebration of food right now is so important to me, and that's why I have it on the show so much. Because yeah. I truly believe that, you know, if you love what you eat, love the people who created them, it'll bring happiness and kindness among all of us. Yeah, so absolutely. You know, it, it, what do we do when we, Italians, Greek, we yeah. all celebrate our food. Even Americans, barbecue is a big deal. Yeah. But if we can take a little time, a minute, just say, oh, I'm eating this hot dog. This came from Germany and Danish immigrants. Oh, immigrants bought it over. Got it. Oh, I'm eating a, 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 a Roy Choice taco that's yeah. with, you know, amazing Kelby beef and barbecue. Yeah. You're like, oh, I came from Korea. Okay. Yeah. And that, I really truly believe, can help all of, all of us to have a little bit of solidarity and yes. really appreciate each other more. You know? Well, food is connection, right? I think food is connection for friends and family, but I think that food is connection for the globe, you know, the global community. And I think that when you share a meal with someone, you learn so much more, you end up being much closer to them. Um, and I think 
that that's really the power of food. And, and I think the more people who kind of think about that and realize that, the better. And, and for me, I hate cooking for myself. I, I, when friends are over, I love it. Well, for two reasons. I love cooking for them, and I love them washing the dishes afterwards. That's yeah. the in my house. <laughs> if I cook, you guys clean up. <laughs> same, same with me. Yeah, good. So if I come over to eat at your house, who's going to clean? What's that? If I come over to eat at dinner at your house, Oh, who cooks and who cleans? We'll take turns. So <laughs> assuming it's a multi-day visit, you'll cook one night, I'll cook one night. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I would love nothing more than that. That would be super fun. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it truly, it's, it's, it's such amazing program that you're putting out there. For those guys, Lucky Chow, you can get it on the internet. You can go to PBS as well. You can... It's, it's on it's on most it's on 95 percent of pbs stations around the country yes. um to make it easier for you guys if you want to binge watch um you can go to luckychild.org where we have season four all six episodes of season four right there for you to watch so that's uh will be easy i encourage you all to do it. It, it it is a pretty fun show and what's great about the show is that if you can't keep your eyeballs on it the whole entire time, it runs really well as a podcast. You can really listen to yeah. the voice of the people. And how? what's one particular story that you discovered that really changed you on the show? Mm, I mean, there's so many. Um, but I think the one – I mean, if there's one, I think the most – one of the most touching stories was really one of the first segments we shot in San Diego at Chino Farm, which is a third generation Japanese American farm on almost 60 acres of prime real estate in, in uh, San Diego and uh, Rancho Santa Fe. Yeah. And this family, uh, not to go through the whole story, you can watch it on the show. It's actually the first, uh, it's in the first episode generations. The pain and suffering that this family went through um, when they came to this country and tried to make a life for themselves, uh, finding themselves uh, in an internment camp where they had to raise seven children. Um, fast forward to today, third generation young guy, Makoto, um, who's in his late 20s, is following in his father and grandfather's footsteps in keeping this incredible farm going. And when I say it's an incredible farm, this farm probably produces the most beautiful produce, some of the most beautiful produce in America, if not the world. They sell to very few wholesale people, um, Alice Waters being one of them, uh, Wolfgang Puck being one of them. But most of what they sell is just at this very humble vegetable stand that they uh, open every single day. They grow heirloom varieties of watermelons. Um, that was incredible. That, that Taiwanese. Was so incredible. When I saw the Taiwanese watermelon, I was like, oh, That Taiwanese giving, watermelon is... Giving us a moment. Thank yeah. you so much. For no, moment. but like, here's the thing. Like, who even knew that there were Asian varieties of watermelons? But this, it, it was called uh, the sor sorbet swirl. Um, this Taiwanese watermelon that was yellow flesh with a like a streaky pink in it yeah. and the texture of it was different than American watermelon it was sweeter it was just incredible so they grow beautiful melons they grow the most beautiful raspberries you've ever seen all their berries are incredible and then Asian vegetables incredible corn um, and so that story touched me in that it's a it's a story about survival it's a story about perseverance it's a story that is that touches upon a hateful period in America where the Japanese were treated as the enemy um, and you know one can see some similarities in in today's current climate where the demonization of immigrants um, has has really become a thing again and you know it's 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 troublesome but to see that that family persevere and have this incredible success and this young guy Makoto was a lawyer is a lawyer he could have done anything but what he chose to do is to stay at the farm and continue its legacy and I think for me that's that's incredibly important and one of the most satisfying stories we told one of the one thing that took away from that story that really touched my heart was that 
he has never forgotten the passage, how he got there. Yeah. And at the same time, he still hold on to so much Asian value that I hope he can break at some point is that to stand up and face the world that he's Japanese American. Because yeah. in his story, when he said that there are times I just hide behind the company so people doesn't realize it's a Japanese farm mm -hmm. so that they can survive. In a modern his in a modern day right now, yeah, we still hear stories like that. Yeah. It's painful. It is painful. It's yeah. so painful. When one thing that connects all of us together is food and he's putting one of the best food out there for people he's wanting to hide his own face who he is and still feed the people out there there's something wrong with that concept yeah, Absolutely. yeah. i mean he should put a sticker of his face and stick it on every watermelon <laughs> salad that way right well you know he, they have they have great fans and i think that you know as long as we continue to showcase these people and highlight their accomplishments and and their contributions i I feel like it just it, it leads to a greater understanding of of Asian American culture and, and, and history. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for celebrating the Asian American community. It, it is absolutely our pleasure. Uh, and then putting a spotlight on so many so many people that we don't get the opportunity to share their passion. And and for those of you guys out there, being a chef, being a farmer is not the glamorous job that you think. No, it is one of the hardest working necessity that we need to have in our, in, in our world. And it is the immigrants. The immigrants are the backbone to our society. And and through all the history of injustice that has been placed on the immigrants, they still stand up and being the first to be there to make sure they're fed. Yes. So with all that, if we can continue with you and I, continue to put spotlight on the immigrants, like Padma continue to share her stories, oh, it's yeah. what we need to do. I think when we all realize we're all immigrants, yeah. Perhaps maybe we'll be kinder to each other. Absolutely. Thank you, William, for your enthusiasm and excitement in bringing stories of Asian food heritage to everyone. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com. And follow me on Instagram at USA88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Faces. I'm your host, Usai. Our director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swernigen. Thank you for this conversation. 